Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. As we just read, we will be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15 this morning. So as you are turning there, I want to uh, tell you why I don't love the sport of baseball. And uh, so if you like baseball, that's okay. Nobody's perfect. Uh, but I don't like baseball. And, uh, and I have three reasons for not liking baseball. All of them are absolutely subjective, but they're also true. Number one, the, reason that I, uh, the first reason that I don't like baseball is because I had an uncanny and unfortunate ability to always get hit by pitches. And so my very first game in uh, fast pitch baseball, I was actually uh, beaned, that's what it's called, getting hit by a pitch, three times in one game. And uh, very first time, very first game, I, I get up to, uh, to bat and I am hit in the ribs. Later on, I'm hit in the hip thigh sort of area and then also hit in the helmet. So after that, I had a healthy respect, otherwise known as a fear, of getting hit by a pitch. And so I just kind of stood there and never swung, never did anything. Thankfully, most of the pitchers weren't all that accurate. And so I would just get on base by walking. That's the first reason I didn't like it was because I always felt like someone was just throwing a ball right at me. Uh, the second reason that I really didn't like it is because I felt like it was somewhat boring. And uh, so I always played uh, outfield. And, uh, and if you ever played outfield in like Little League, you know, most of the time balls don't actually make it out to the outfield. And uh, so a lot of the time I would just take off my glove and I'd put it on top of my head and I'd just sit down. I'd play with flowers or insects or whatever it might be because I felt like there's nothing to do. I like sports where we actually get to do something like football or soccer or tennis or any other sport other than baseball. So that's the second reason I don't really like baseball. The third reason, as you can probably guess, I just wasn't good at it. And uh, so I don't really like doing things that I'm not good at. But I played baseball for about eight or nine uh, years. And, uh, and so my last three years, I was on a team called the Phillies. And, uh, and so on that team with me was a guy named Christopher. Uh, Chris and I had grown up together uh, there in a uh, somewhat small city, played various sports together, uh, not only baseball, but some other sports. And, uh, and so we were fairly good friends. And, uh, and so uh, Christopher and I kind of grew up together. I haven't seen Chris in about 23 and a half years. Uh, even though we were, were really good friends. The last time I actually saw Chris, we were sitting in a health class together, our senior year of high school, one month away from graduating. So kind of the, the home uh, stretch of our high school careers. And, uh, and we're sitting there. He's literally sitting right next to me. We're making jokes because it's health class and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the door opens and the principal walks in. And behind the principal, there are multiple police officers that walk in and, uh, and the last thing I ever heard Chris say was he uh, muttered a, a curse word under his breath. And, uh, and then the principal called his name and he got up and walked out. Now, being high school, everybody in there is going, ooh, ah, oh, Chris is busted, those kinds of things. We had no idea what we did. We assumed he had done something silly, serious enough to kind of merit the police officer showing up. But nothing that serious, certainly none of us thought that would be the last time that we ever saw him. The reason that this is the last time we ever saw him is for the past 23 years, he's been serving a life sentence for capital murder, committed uh, less than a quarter of a mile away from my house. Now, again, I don't know what we assumed that he had done in that moment where the cops are leading him out of the room, that he had maybe stolen something or maybe that he, you know, had knocked down mailboxes or just all the, the silly, stupid stuff that kids do uh, as kids. But none of us assumed 
that he had committed capital murder. That was literally the last thought that would have been on our mind. That would be uh, utterly shocking. Had we known that, no one would have been making these snarky, snide sort of comments. Everyone would have just stared at, in, in awe and horror at this because it's so utterly shocking. Well, that's similar to our text this morning. We've been talking about love. We've been talking uh, 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 about the gospel. We've been talking about Christ's incarnation, the reason that he came. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about murder. Welcome to Parkway, right? If your uh, relatives ask you, what are you talking about at church this weekend? It's Thanksgiving. It's Advent. And you tell them, we're talking about murder. 45 minutes, we're talking about a passage on murder. It's shocking, and that's the point that John is intending to make with our text this morning, for us to really sense, uh, for us to really grasp the the severity, the gravity of of hatred in our hearts, to to grasp the severity of his call that we might love one another. He uses this very shocking illustration, this analogy of murder, so that we would see the gravity of hatred as juxtaposed with a call to love. So I want to spend a couple of minutes just praying uh, together, and then we'll dive in to our text. I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear, remove from you whatever sort of divided affections or attention you might have. And then will you pray the same for those around you? Friends, family, strangers, whoever it might be, that the Lord would give us a collective desire to know and believe his word this morning. And then would you pray for me, for boldness and faithfulness? Father, we ask for your help this morning. We're we're grateful for the reality of the incarnation of your son that we celebrate uh, this Advent as we look forward to Christmas and we look forward to his future return. And we're grateful for the gift of your spirit who uh, enlightens us to truth. And we're grateful for the gift of your word, which is inspired and inerrant and sufficient and authoritative. And so we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might believe. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verse 11. Again, 1 John chapter three, we're walking through the book of 1 John. We've been in it for uh, the past uh, six months or so. Uh, we'll be in it for another few months. And so we, are, we come to 1 John chapter three, verse 11, which says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Before we really get to this particular verse, I want to go back into the context and begin where we left off last week. Last week, we read uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, and it says this, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In a sense, this verse, verse 10, is a summary of the entire book of 1 John, It is written in order to help us answer this question. How do we distinguish the sons of God on one hand 
from the sons of the evil one, from the sons of the devil, from the sons of the world. These are uh, the different phrases that John will use. How do we distinguish the sons of God from the sons of the devil? And here's where we need this really biblically robust worldview because our culture and our sort of innate natural tendency is, uh, is really backward in regards to answering that question. What we tend to naturally think is we tend to naturally think that most people are basically pretty good. Most people are basically pretty good. Some are super good. You know, you have the Fred Rogers, the Mr. Rogers of the world. You have the uh, Mother Teresas of the world. You have whoever invented coffee. They're basically really, really good. And then you have other people who are basically, you know, really, really bad. You have the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots and whoever sings Who Lets the Dog Out or whoever, you know, drives too slow in the left-hand lane. Whatever it is that kind of does it for you, your particular pet peeve, and you think these people have sold their souls to Satan. Everyone basically starts out in our mind as children of God, but if they do really, really bad things, then they become sons of Satan. And that's the exact opposite of what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually says that all of us, every single one of us, we are by nature children of wrath. That's the language of Ephesians. That every single one of us, by virtue of our relationship with Adam, are born into a state of evil, are born into a state of wickedness, that we are by nature children of the devil, and it takes an act of God's grace to actually make us sons of God. So it's not that people are basically children of God, but some of them become sons of Satan. It's the exact opposite. We're all sons of Satan. Sons or daughters of Satan. But some of us, by God's grace, through regeneration and through adoption, become sons of God. So how do we tell the difference? How do we know if we've been born again? How do we know if we're children of God? Again, this is one of the primary reasons that 1 John is written. It's written to answer this question by giving us three litmus tests. We've talked a lot about this over the past few months. There's a theological test, there's a moral test, and then there's a relational test. A theological test, a moral test, and a relational test. In other words, you distinguish the sons of God from the sons of Satan, from the sons of evil, uh, the sons of the world. Uh, they're distinguished on the base, uh, basis of their relationship to Christ, to sin, and to others. Again, the entire book of 1 John was written to provide these three tests, but the way that it does it is really unique. It's kind of like a corkscrew. Rather than simply uh, answering the question once, rather than simply expounding love once and then sin once and then doctrine once, it actually does each one of them multiple times. And each time that it twists, it goes a little bit deeper into the implications uh, of that particular test. And so the past two weeks, we've been talking in particular about our relationship to sin. We've been looking at this moral test that sons of God are distinguished from sons of the evil one on the basis of the way that they relate to sin. Not perfectly, but there is this growing uh, desire for sanctification. There's this growing love for God that manifests itself in a growing hatred of sin that we put to death the deeds of the flesh and so forth. That's what we've been talking about the past two weeks. But now we move into another test and we get into the test of love. Our entire passage this week and next will really uh, further elaborate this test of love, what is meant by love. But as it relates to this particular verse, verse 11 here, I want you to notice two different things. 
First, I want you to, uh, to notice that he says that this message of love, he says that it's that you have heard from the beginning. In other words, they've heard this command before. They've heard this command that they are to love before. When? When the gospel was first preached to them. From the beginning of their salvation, from the beginning of their adoption, from the beginning of their regeneration, from uh, the very beginning of their faith, they had heard this. Why is that particular uh, truth important for us to recognize? Why does John bring that out here? Well, I want you to remember the context. If you've been coming for a while, you uh, might remember part of the context of 1 John is written, there are these false teachers, and these false teachers had come in with this false doctrine. They had come in with this very innovative, creative, novel way of looking at Christ. They said, I know that you've heard this about the gospel, but we have this secret insider access. We have these mysterious truths. So don't listen to these things that you've heard before. Instead, let us tell you these secret theological things. And so it sounds really uh, inspiring. It sounds interesting. Who doesn't love uh, a fresh sort of uh, tale on the gospel or whatever it might be? But the kind of the image that you're to, to get is imagine that you are leaving your doctor's office and there's a man outside in the alley uh, behind the doctor's office and he's got a trench coat and he opens up his trench coat and he says, here, I got some homemade cures for you. I sell them out of my van. That's kind of the image of these false teachers. They're offering something new. They're offering something you can't get anywhere else. But the proper response is to say, I have no desire for that. I have no need for that. That's not helpful. That's not good. John says, you can go back. Go back and listen to Jesus. Go back and read my gospel. You can go back and look at the Old Testament itself, this command to love because love is the fulfilling of the law and the prophets. This is not new, it's from the beginning. Just about every time that I get on to uh, Twitter or uh, that I, I log on to my wife Casey's Facebook or something like that, I will see some person that's arguing for some sort of theological position that no one in the history of the church has, all, uh, has held. They're arguing for some view on, uh, on sexuality, the, some view on divorce and remarriage, some view on social justice, whatever it might be that hasn't been held by anyone in church history. And if so, that's a pretty good sign that what you're holding to isn't what's been held to from the beginning. John says, go back to what is from the beginning. You don't need this new stuff. The irony in, in this, whenever I get on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it might be, the irony is that it's now seen as humble to disregard thousands of years of Christian, uh, Christian tradition, to be a lifelong learner. That's the phrase that I often see. Ironically, though, they never actually learn anything. They never actually arrive at any sort of fuller understanding of anything. They're just kind of tossed to and fro by any sort of whim or wave or whatever it might be. John says this command is nothing new. It's not innovative, it's not creative, it's not novel, it's from the beginning. You've heard this before. Nothing that we're gonna say today is certainly new information from you. If you've come to church more than once or twice in your entire life, everything that we're saying, you already know this morning. Second thing to notice, notice that he says that we are to love who? He says to love one another. This is one of about 59 commands in, in the New Testament regarding the relationship that we are to have with each other within the church. 
You might even sum up the other 58 or or so commands with this one command, to love one another, because everything else is sort of subsumed under this one command. When we're told to encourage one another, when we're told to serve one another, when we're told to forgive one another, when we're told to greet one another, when we're told to do all of these other 50-something commands to do uh, these things to one another, those are basically just implications and applications of this call to love one another. So who is the one another? Well, the one another is other Christians, the church. There is certainly in Scripture a call that we are to love those outside the church. Christ would tell us to love our enemies, to to bless and to pray for those who persecute us. So there's a call to love our enemies, and yet that's not the context of this particular passage. This particular passage is not dealing with our love for outsiders. It's dealing with our love for insiders, for each other for one another. In fact, this is even stronger. If Christ tells you to love your enemies, how much more should you love those who are your brothers and sisters, who should be your friends, who share the same spirit, who have the same father, who love the same Lord? What does that love look like? Well, the rest of our passage this morning and our passage next week actually will expound upon that. So let's keep going and look at verse 12. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That escalated quickly, right? We're talking about love and all of a sudden we're just here in the midst of murder. Why is it that John goes from zero to 60 from love to murder in the span of one verse? It seems like a huge leap. Well, I can think of a couple of reasons for him to do that, for him to mention murder The first reason I think that he does that is because it's kind of the ultimate expression of hate. There's really no one-upping this particular manifestation of hate. Imagine that you're at an office party and you're talking to some of your coworkers, I guess you're gossiping uh, with your coworkers about your, your mutual disdain for that coworker that you don't like. Let's call him Roger. Sorry if your name is Roger. All right, I didn't name you Roger though, that's your parents' fault, all right? So, uh, Roger, and everyone's talking about how they don't like Roger, and, uh, and so the, the, your buddy over here says, you know what I do? Every once in a while, I will uh, uh, change his uh, background on his computer, and that's the way that I show my dislike of, uh, of Roger. And uh, someone else will say, you know what, sometimes I park in his parking spot, I don't care. And then, uh, and then someone else will say, you know what, sometimes I steal his lunch. And then you speak up and you said, you know what, I just murdered Roger. You win, right? There's no one up, there's no like higher level that someone can go to show how much they actually dislike and hate Roger. You've won that argument. Uh, there's no topping that. So John kind of gives us this utmost, just ultimate example, illustration of hate in order for us to see the implications of it. There's a second reason that he mentions murder. I think that he mentions murder because it provides a perfect contrast to what we're going to be talking about next week. So let's look ahead really quickly. We're not going to talk much about it, but I want you to to know where we're going. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he, that's Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if hatred is taking life from another, then love is giving life for another. 
So you see this strong set of contrasts. Love contrasted with hate. Murder contrasted with sacrifice. Cain contrasted with Christ. We see this strong uh, series of contrasts that John is setting up here. Obviously, if we love our brothers, then we shouldn't murder them. And to illustrate this even more vividly, John uses the Old Testament example of Cain. Now, what's really interesting is in the entire book of 1 John, this is the only explicit uh, reference to any Old Testament uh, narrative or Old Testament character or anything like that. It's the only person that he names in the entire book is Cain. And this is the only Old Testament story that he is going to explicitly uh, reference. And so John simply assumes that his readers are already somewhat familiar with this story of Cain and Abel. I imagine that most of you, if you grew up in church or you've been in, in church for a while, I imagine that most of you are already familiar. But let me summarize it just to make sure. And so in the beginning of Genesis, God creates man. He creates Adam. Adam is a Hebrew word that basically means man. And so he creates man. He creates him uh, from the dust of the earth. And, uh, and then he creates woman out of man, out of man's rib. And so he has Adam and he has Eve. And, uh, and they bear a child and that child's name is Cain. He's the firstborn. And then they bear a second child and that child's name is Abel. And uh, for whatever reason, the text doesn't explicitly say, uh, probably pointing to the mystery of God's election, uh, God simply has favor for uh, Abel, but he disregards Cain. I like to think because Cain's a vegan or something like that. But he, for whatever reason, God uh, has favor for Abel. He loves Abel. He accepts uh, Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. He disregards Cain. And so Cain gets angry. And what does Cain do? He murders his brother. Now, this is really interesting because if we think about it, this is one of those things that we just, we have a presupposition. Uh, probably if you grew up in church, you have this idea that Cain took a huge rock and crushed his brother's head with it. But the text actually doesn't say how he did it. He might have done it with his bare hands. He might have done it with uh, some sort of a knife or a spear or something like that or an assault rifle. Everyone blames assault rifles for everything today, so you, you just throw it on there. But the, the text doesn't explicitly say how Cain kills Abel. It just says that he kills Abel. Jewish tradition says that it's with a rock, but again, we don't really know. Now, notice what John says about Cain. It says, Cain, who was of the evil one. That relates back. Remember, verse 10 kind of provides this sort of context for us where verse 10 talks about the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. As Christ will be kind of the prototype of what a son of God should be and he will be a prototype of how we are to love others. So Cain is gonna serve as this prototype of the son of uh, the devil uh, and a prototype of what hatred looks like. And I can just imagine uh, Cain being a son of Satan. I can imagine the serpent whose head was cursed and prophesied that it would one day be crushed by the seed of woman. The, the serpent squealing in delight at the irony as Cain crushes his brother's head. In addition to that, there's this little interesting linguistic treasure. You can't, you can't really pick it up in the, the English You'll have to take my word for it. You can go look it up uh, later in Greek if you want. But John doesn't use any of the most common words in Greek for murder here. 
Whenever he uses the word murder here in verse 12, he doesn't actually use any of the words that are most commonly associated with uh, murder. The word that he uses is very interesting. It's not very common in the New Testament. In fact, it's only found in John's writings, but we see it about 80 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where it's translated not as murder, but actually as the word slaughter. And in almost every use, the slaughter that's referenced is a sacrificial slaughter. It's the slaughtering of a sacrificial animal. Interestingly enough, though, that isn't the word that's used in Genesis, in the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis, to describe Abel's murder. So why does John use it? Why does John use this particular word that doesn't just mean murder in general, but means sacrificial slaughter in particular? I think that John chooses this word in order to connect it to the root of Cain's jealousy, the root of Cain's hatred of Abel. God had approved of Abel's what? His sacrifice. He had disapproved of Cain's So I think Cain is essentially saying in this moment, or at least John is making this connection for us, you want a sacrifice of blood? I'll give you a sacrifice of blood. I'll give you the blood of my brother. And that act, that sacrifice, isn't a sacrifice to the Lord God Almighty, the creator, but it's a sacrifice to Cain's father, the evil one, the devil. Now, most of us aren't often uh, tempted to actually physically commit murder. At least I hope not. I hope that's not a particular struggle that you have. So it might be tempting to say, don't murder, check, got it, move on, I'm killing it. No pun intended. All right, but that would be a tragic mistake because we're all in danger of really the, the underlying disposition of the heart that is being warned against here. You see, murder is just one manifestation of the heart condition that John is talking about here. Murder is a symptom of hatred, which itself is rooted in something much more subtle, something much more malicious. Why does the text say that Cain murdered Abel? Notice what it says there. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. In other words, he hated and killed his brother. Why? Because he loved himself. That's the reason. And that tendency toward self-love, that tendency toward envy, toward jealousy, toward narcissism, toward vanity, toward pride, it dwells in each and every one of our hearts. Whether you've ever killed somebody or thought about killing somebody or not, these dispositions dwell in your heart. In fact, the underlying source of all of our conflicts is the same thing. Listen to how James would say it in James chapter four, verses one through three. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Cain desired something and that desire drove him to hatred. And that hatred drove him to murder. And I'm telling you that even if you never murder, that you have this underlying disposition. Even if you don't think that you hate others, you have these desires raging within. Why do you fight with your spouse? Why do you fight with your parents? Why do you fight with your kids? Why do you fight with your coworkers? Why do you fight with your neighbors? Why do you fight with that person who cut you off in traffic? 
Why do you fight with others in the church? Because you want certain things that they don't want. You have certain desires. You want peace and quiet. You want to be left alone. You want to watch the game. You want some help around the house. You want, you want, you want. And those wants aren't necessarily a bad thing in and of themselves. But when those desires come into conflict with others' desires and you elevate them over your love for them, then they stagnate and they curdle and they turn into hate and envy and jealousy and bitterness. So there are dozens and dozens of ways that you and I could be like Cain, even if we never actually uh, take up our hand against a brother. When we envy the blessings of others, we're being like Cain. When we wish some form of suffering on others. When someone corrects us, they point out some sort of error in our morality or some sort of error in our thinking or theology or something like that, and we despise them, we rebuke them, we ridicule them, we slander them, we're being like Cain in that moment. When was the last time that you actually thanked somebody for pointing out some sort of error in your life? When was the last time you actually thought of that as God's grace to you to remove the log or the, uh, the, the plank or the speck from your eye? You see, there's various ways that we might be like Cain, even if we never kill our brothers and sisters. We can avoid, we can slander, we can criticize, we can ridicule, we can withhold ourselves, we can withhold our love. And if the command of this text, if the command of Scripture was merely don't murder, then we might get away with that. But the command isn't just thou shalt not murder, although that is a command. I don't murder every single day of my life. In fact, there has never been a day of my life where I've ever actually killed someone. If that's the command, if that's the only command, then I'm great and you're great. But the command goes beyond not murdering and calls me to actually love. And as we'll see next week, whereas murder is sacrificing another to fulfill my own cravings, love is sacrificing myself to fulfill another's needs. And so after killing Abel, Cain asked this question. He says, am I my brother's keeper? And this text in 1 John, in the context here, is saying, yes. Cain assumes that the answer is no, I'm not my brother's keeper. God's answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's why the Bible is full of commands that you love, that you serve, that you encourage, that you correct, that you meet with, that you forgive, and 50-something other ones of these, one another. To some degree, you bear a responsibility for the person sitting next to you, to your right, to your left, in front of you, behind you. There's no way for you to actually love God and to fulfill and to obey his word without loving others. And by that, I don't just mean feeling a sense of love, but actually sacrificing yourself, actually acting in love. We're gonna spend a lot of time on that next week. For now, let's keep going and look at verse 13. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Remember how we said earlier that we are by nature children of wrath and only children of God by grace through adoption and regeneration? That's really important for us to recognize here because it helps us to understand that for John, when he uses the word world here, uh, he uses that to represent the mass of unbelieving humanity. In John's theology, the world is just a way of referring to the mass of unbelieving humanity who are actually of the evil one. Right? In other words, the sons of the devil, to use the language of verse 10. So this is a correlation 
This verse is a correlation or a consequence of the previous verse. As Cain hated Abel, so the sons of the evil one hate the sons of God. And we've already encountered this idea before in the book of 1 John, as we talked about uh, in regards to abiding in Christ in chapter 2 of 1 John. We went back to chapter 15 of John's gospel, which talks about abiding in Christ as branches abide in the vine. And immediately after that, we found in John 15, verses uh, 17 through 19, this. Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the exact same pattern that we see in 1 John. So there's a sense in which what you're seeing in 1 John 2 through 3 in particular mirrors what you see in John 15. I think that John is very intentionally alluding back to his own gospel there. The same pattern, abiding in Christ loving one another and being hated by the world. And John says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because I've already written about it in my gospel. Don't be surprised because Jesus has already promised that the world is going to hate you. But even more than that, don't be surprised because it's indicative of a pattern that's been going on since the beginning. The sons of God from the very opening chapters of Genesis have hated, uh, I'm sorry, the sons of the evil one have hated the sons of God as Cain hated Abel. I read a uh, somewhat humorous story the other day that reminded me of this. I'm not sure if you follow basketball, but it's better than baseball, so you should. Uh, but uh, there was a story that came out, uh, if you're not familiar with, uh, with, uh, with basketball, with the NBA, uh, you might not be aware, but the Mavericks have a superstar on their hands, a 20-year-old named uh, Luka Doncic, and he's a, a breakout star. He won Rookie of the Year last year. He's in the running for MVP this year, which is unheard of for a, a second-year 20-year-old, and uh, he's nearly averaging a 30-point triple-double. If you don't know what basketball means... That basically means he's incredible. And, uh, and so he was drafted uh, number three in the draft two years ago. Uh, but what's really interesting is uh, Sacramento, the Sacramento Kings, had an opportunity to take him at number two. But they didn't draft him at number two. And an article just came out uh, just uh, about a week ago as to the reason why. Uh, I don't, don't know if you got a chance to read that article, but it said that their general manager, a guy named Vladi Divac, uh, uh, was actually knew Luca's father and didn't like Luca's father. And so he assumed that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so he didn't draft this guy who's looking to be the next LeBron James, Michael Jordan, whatever it might be. And the reason is because he didn't like his father. That's kind of what we're seeing in our text this morning. The world hates you. Why? Because it hates your father. That's what's going on here. A while back we saw that uh, we used these two different Greek words for sin, that hamartia, which is where we get the word hamartiology, the study of sin, hamartia is anemia, a word that means lawlessness. So sin is lawlessness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And this word lawlessness, anemia, is a word that signifies not only disobedience to the law, but actual disdain for the law. And not only disdain for the law, but disdain for the giver of the law. It's cosmic treason that explains why the world hates you, because it hates God. And you're a son or a daughter of God. There are seasons where this hatred might seem more overt overt and obvious. There's periods of intense persecution 
You study church history and you look at uh, the Roman Empire and and certain periods under uh, Nero or uh, Diocletian or Islamic persecution in India or the Middle East or under communism in China or something like that. We've mentioned this before, but almost twice as many people were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than every other century combined. So sometimes the world's hatred erupts into martyrdom erupts into this violence, into actual murder. But martyrdom and murder are not the only manifestations of the world's hatred. As your envy, as your hatred for others doesn't always erupt into murder, so the world's doesn't always manifest in martyrdom. Sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes it's more passive, but it's always there. Regardless of the form, John says the world hates the sons and daughters of God. So John reminds us, he says, don't be surprised. This is not a shocking thing. The world hates you. We should be sorrowful about that, but we shouldn't be shocked. Now, as we mentioned before, the context of this passage isn't dealing with loving the world, loving our enemies and so forth. But just to be clear, that is the appropriate response in light of dozens of other passages of Scripture. In other words, the fact that the world hates you, which it does, doesn't then give you permission to hate it. Does that make sense? The fact that uh, the sons of the evil one hate the sons of God doesn't mean that the sons of God should respond by hating the sons of the evil one. The sons of God are called to love. In fact, the nature of our love often is going to have this response uh, whereas the world is going to increase in its hatred for us because the nature of our love calls us to speak the truth, which infringes upon the comforts and desires of the world. This is why it's always so tragic and so illogical when those who call themselves Christians would capitulate to the world. There's this sense in which some people think, if only that it will show that we're reasonable. We'll compromise on this particular uh, conviction. We'll, we'll begin to downplay what the Bible says about uh, human sexuality We'll begin to downplay what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. We'll begin to downplay what it says about absolute truth or the exclusivity of Christ. And maybe if we do that, maybe if we give them enough, maybe then the world will love us. The world will accept us. But John says the world will never love the sons of God because it will never love God. You can either have the love of the world or the love of God. You can't have both. Let's keep going. Verses 14 and 15. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. uh, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So this is kind of a summary of the implication of the previous verses. He's kind of doing this, a tale of two cities, a story of two kingdoms, two families, two destinations, two directions. That's what John is doing here. He's contrasting these two different ways of living and being. On the one hand is death and hatred. On the other hand is life and love. And everyone belongs in, other, uh, in one of these two realms, in one of these two hands, as evidenced by this strong and stark contrast, this dualism that he's going to set up between these two different ways of being And he's kind of mirroring something that we see Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount. You might be familiar with this. In Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus' point is not that anger is literally as bad as murder, or later on, whenever he talks about lust and adultery, his point is not that lusting for a woman is literally as bad as having an adulterous affair. That's missing the metaphor that he's using here. When he later says that we should pluck out our eye or cut off our hand, he doesn't mean that we should actually literally physically do those things. He's speaking figuratively or metaphorically. Likewise, John's point here in 1 John isn't that hate is literally, literally the same thing as murder or that literally no one who has ever murdered someone can be saved. Moses and King David and Paul were all in some sense guilty of murder and that they're pretty big deals in the Bible. So the point isn't that this is literal, that if you've ever hated someone that you've actually killed them, and if you've ever killed someone you actually aren't a Christian or something like that, but it's a figurative expression to show that there are two ways of being, and that those two kingdoms, those two families, those two realms or dominions are absolutely and utterly incompatible. Those sons of God know the experience of both sin and holiness. We know the experience of both love and hate, that in reality, those things are antithetical. They're irreconcilable. Even though we might simultaneously know what it's like to both love holiness and still to have the uh, abiding presence of sin, yet those two dispositions are antithetical. They're incompatible. There is no resolution between them. And so that's the first reason that John speaks in such stark contrast such duality, such absolutes. A second reason is this. I think he does so in order to graphically portray the consequences lest we give a little bit of ground, a little bit of quarter for hatred or falsehood or immorality or whatever. You see, people have this innate tendency to ask the question, how much is too far? How far is too far? How much can I hate my brother? I know I can't actually murder him, but can I hate him a little bit? Can I spit on him? Can I hit him? Can I be apathetic toward him? I remember when I was growing up, uh, there were certain lines I knew I couldn't cross with my sister. I had an older brother, so I couldn't pick on him. I had a younger sister, so I could pick on her. I knew I couldn't hit her, but could I thump her? Could I push her? Could I do these sorts of things? I wanted to see what's, what's the absolute bare minimum of, uh, of obedience that I can have. Or another way to say it, what's the maximum amount of disobedience I can have without actually being punished for it? And humans have a tendency to do that. Every one of us has a tendency to do that. So I can't murder my brother, but can I be apathetic toward him? So John uses this form of absolute contrast to show there is no minimum amount of acceptable sexual morality or greed or pride, or lust, or heresy, or hate, or whatever it is that he is talking about at the time. And that should be really convicting for all of us in this room. Because if you know yourself, if you really truly know yourself, then you know that you fall short. Even those of us who have actually tasted the grace of Christ and been transformed by him, we still lust, we still lie, we still get unrighteously angry at times. We still un speak unrighteous words at times. We still have unrighteous thoughts at times. We still hate at times. It's more subtle 
It's more domesticated. It's more socially acceptable, but it's still there. Everyone in this room should be convicted this morning because the, the, the command isn't just don't murder. The command is that we might actually love. And everyone in this room falls short to some degree in this call to love others. Even the best of us, our love is bent. Our love is broken. Our love is, uh, is fashioned inward. That's what the Puritans described love as, uh, the, the love of sin as, is this, this inward turn, this narcissism. Our love is bent, it's misshapen, it's self-seeking, it's otherwise incomplete in at least some sense. There's pockets in our heart that are hesitant to love, that long to embrace hate. Maybe not murder, but indifference, or jealousy, or resentment, or bitterness, and so forth. And so this passage beckons us to repent. As the man, there's a story in the Gospels where this man cries out to Jesus, uh, and, uh, and he ultimately says, I believe, help my unbelief. That should be our confession this morning. That those of us who know and love and trust Jesus and, and love others should be able to say, I love, but help my unlove. I love, but help my hate. There's a sense in which there is still the residue of hate in my heart. But at the end of the day, your hope, my hope, our hope is not in the strength or sincerity of our love. It's not in the strength or sincerity of the way that you love others, the way that you love those who are around you, the way that you love those in the church, the way that you love the world, the way that you love your spouse, the way that you love your kids, the way that you love your parents. Your hope is ultimately not in the way that you love others. In fact, your hope is ultimately not in the way that you love God. Your hope is in the way that God has loved you. And that's a totally different perspective whatsoever. Our hope is grounded in his great love for us, that he would take those of us who are sons and daughters of Satan by nature and make us sons and daughters of God by grace through adoption. That he would make us his own so that for an eternity to come, he might reveal to us the heights and depths and widths of his love for us. Demonstrated by giving his son for us to save us from our sin and to bring us to himself as we'll read next week, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's our hope. The command of the passage this morning is that we might love others. And yes, this is the call for us. And yes, we should be convicted uh, by places in our life where we see a lack of love. But at the end of the day, our hope is not in our obedience to that command. Our hope is in Christ's love for us, that he's already proven to us on the cross. So let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion where we'll celebrate the death of Christ for us and for our sin. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would uh, help us this morning, that none of us in this room would walk away with this uh, lowest common denominator understanding of obedience that says simply, well, I haven't killed anybody, and so I'm good. On the other hand, I pray that we wouldn't be so overwhelmed by the reality of the sinful residue in our lives that we would feel condemned. So I pray that you would help us to walk the line between condemnation and conviction, that rather than running away from you, we might run to you in hope because you have loved us. 
You're a good father who gives good gifts, and so we pray with hope and expectation in Christ's name.